Exodus chapter 2 is our text, and let me remind you of what we've looked at so far. We started this series in Exodus chapter 6, and we noticed that God has liberated us in order to make us liberators. He's liberated us uh, not only in the Old Testament to preserve a line for Himself, but he, He has prepared the people of God in the Old Testament for the liberation He would provide in Christ. And He continues that work of liberation and redemption through our investment in the gospel. And then over the last couple of weeks, the last couple of studies, we've looked at those ways that Christ is our Redeemer and our Liberator, and we've noticed that there is not a way in all of imagination that He is not a Liberator, that He is the one who liberates us financially. He is the one who liberates us from economic oppression. He's the one who liberates us from political oppression, the one who liberates us from social oppression and from spiritual oppression. There is no other Uh, oppression imaginable from which Christ is not able to redeem us. He is a whole Christ for whole people, for the whole of life. And so now we turn to chapter 2 and we look very specifically at the kind of Redeemer, the person and work of the Redeemer that God has sent to us. First of all, through Moses, the one anticipating Christ, and then the one who will be manifested through us in our work as well. I want you to prepare yourself to meet with Christ afresh in this Old Testament text, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river, by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds. And sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, thank you for your careful preparations for us in the gospel. That gospel that you would reveal in Jesus Christ and now you choose to reveal to the world through us. Refresh us with the good news of the gospel. Call us afresh to new discipleship. And for those who have never embraced Christ Would this be the day of their salvation? Would they hunger and thirst for him and find him to be the satisfaction 
of all their desires. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake. And God's people said together, Amen. A few years ago, I watched a documentary on uh, state dinners that are held at the White House. A state dinner is the highest honor that the White House can convey on someone else that is a visiting member of state, a visiting head of state. Only 130 guests are allowed, and the reason there are documentaries on White House dinners is because the distinction of them is their preparation. No detail is left unthought for. I watched uh, one documentary which showed the head butler preparing the dining room. Uh, Sometimes uh, special china is crafted just for the time. Sometimes special utensils are crafted just for that dinner. And so the head butler was going about each table with a measuring stick, measuring just how far one plate was from the other, how far the knife was from the plate, and how far the, the spoon was from the knife, and so forth. Everything was precise. And then the visiting head of state was studied. And so I saw another one just yesterday about uh, the visit of the president of China. And they figured that they realized, the, 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 the chief um, uh, chef realized that it was a month before the moon festival in China. So she crafted for each table a Chinese garden And she customized pastries in the shape of moons for the moon festival. There was no detail left unthought for. The reason there are documentaries on White House state dinners is because of the preparation. And the preparation conveys the dignity, the honor that's being afforded that's being demonstrated to the one who is visiting. Why do we study the Old Testament? If the New Testament has come, if Christ has come and revealed all things, if everything anticipated in the Old Testament has already been revealed in Christ and is recorded in the New Testament, why do we study the Old Testament? Because preparation reveals love. Preparation and attention to detail not only conveys honor and dignity, but in this case, it conveys love. When we read how Moses was crafted into not just a Redeemer in the the Old Testament, but the Redeemer of the Old Testament, as scholars say, we understand How much God loved us, not just before the foundation of the world, but before the revelation of Christ. We find in Moses the details of the person and work of Christ. Preparation conveys love. I said my first Sunday here that I only had one sermon and I preach it every week. And that is... The Bible, Jesus, and you. We study the Bible, the Bible leads us to Jesus, and Jesus leads us to imitate Him in response to His grace. My little neighbor was waiting for me when I got home that first Sunday, and he said, Mr. Robertson, if you only have one sermon, why did we hire you? 
a little difficult concept to convey, but there's one sermon. Moses, in this case, in Exodus, it's going to be Moses and Christ and you. What do we see in the person of Moses that leads us to the person of Christ and the person you and I are supposed to be? Old Testament scholars like our own Mary Wilson talk about types in the Old Testament. Types. Now, by that, they don't mean versions. They mean something that is a precursor to what is going to be fulfilled later, something that is a foreshadowing. And so, Uh, When uh, Moses lifted up a serpent on a stick in the wilderness, that was a type of Christ, not a version of Christ, but a foreshadowing, a precursor of the way Christ was going to save us. He was going to be lifted up on a cross to die in our place. And, and a, a type is not just a, an allegory, it's not just a figure, it's something that is designed intentionally by God. It's something designed intentionally by God to prepare His Old Testament people for the way He was going to bring them redemption in Christ and something that He intends for us to see. Uh, it's something that in the Old Testament provides a fresh look from another angle for us on the Jesus we have already embraced. Moses was that type. Moses was the major type of Christ in the Old Testament. One of my professors in seminary said, that, said it this strongly. He said, one's evaluation uh, and... Um, and determination about Moses determines the way, one's evaluation of, of Moses determines the way one evaluates Christ. And one, the way one evaluates Christ determines the way one evaluates Moses. In other words, Moses is intended in every way to prefigure Christ, and yet at the same time, there's enough of his sinfulness and his limits to reveal that he's not the Christ. And when you understand how Christ came perfectly to redeem you, you can look at Moses and see new insights into the redemption God is preparing for you. It's very interesting that even the people who tried to deny that fact have to admit it in the end. Some Old Testament professors and scholars, even though they take the Bible very seriously, that they're very convinced that you have to read the Bible in the same way that it was read at the time it was originally written. And you can't make applications beyond that. One man named Umberto Casuto is such a, such a scholar. And he says, uh, yes, he fully affirms Christ in the New Testament. But when you go into the Old Testament, you have to lock your mind into what would the people at the time have heard God saying. And that's the application you make. And yet, Dr. Casuto has these headings for his chapter on Moses in Exodus chapter 2, born a Savior. God raised up a Redeemer and one who was destined to bring salvation to others. That was his outline. He can't help himself. Even the plain meaning of the text, as he calls it, even the plain meaning of the text shouts to us, this is the kind of Christ who is coming to redeem you from all your sin and all of your enemies. What kind of person was Moses? What does it show us about Christ? He was fully human for one. 
Of course, he was fully human. He was born, he was born a human being. Unlike the heroic tales of the pagan religions around, or even the heroic tales that we flock to at the movies today, this was a real person, a real human being, fallen and broken as we are. And it was necessary for him to be fallen and broken like his people, that he might be their redeemer. Moses, Moses was born a Jew. Moses was born with indwelling sin. Moses was born to Levite parents, Amram and, and Jochebed. He eventually became a preacher's kid, another mark against him. Moses was born a, a man who understood an oppressed people. And so he felt their burden viscerally and responded when one of his people was being taken advantage of. And, and then Moses also had to identify with the Egyptians. He had to be taken into, into Pharaoh's household, miraculously taken into his household. He had, to, he had to understand Egypt from the inside out in order to lead them and liberate his people from the inside out. He had to be born into the midst of the enemy. Everything that was oppressing his people, he had to understand from the inside out, both from the ones who were being oppressed as well as from those who were doing the oppressing. Moses, as we'll learn by Exodus chapter 4, is a traumatized man. I won't spoil the surprise in Exodus chapter 4, but when Moses makes his protest to God for why he cannot be a leader of God's people, he effectively says, I cannot do it because I am deformed. I'm not strong enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not stable enough. I'm not secure enough because he's been traumatized in his relationship to his Jewish brethren and he's been traumatized in his relationship to those oppressing. He is at one time one who can identify with the oppressed and with the oppressors and he lives in the trauma of both worlds in order to be a redeemer to the traumatized. These Jewish people who were relieved from their slavery were continually going back, wanting to go back to their slavery. That's what traumatized people do. Moses had to understand that. He had to understand from the inside out how evil, how much evil they had encountered. The Bible says of Jesus, because the children shared flesh and blood, he too was born like them and he had to undergo death that he might set us free from the one who holds the power of death, even the devil. He had to be made like us in flesh and blood. And because he has been made like us, Hebrews chapter 4 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in every point tried, tempted and tested like we are, yet without sin. You want to know if Jesus, you say, I'm not sure that Jesus has experienced everything that I'm experiencing. You need only to read the Psalms. 
Those the Psalms are the prayers of Jesus, prayed through the various writers of the Psalms. And those Psalms reveal not just the external suffering that, uh, that Jesus encountered for our sakes, but they record the internal suffering that Christ took on that he might be a perfect high priest for us as well. Jesus knew what it was to feel abandoned. Jesus knew what it was to be traumatized. Jesus knew what it was to be betrayed. Jesus knew what it was to be spiritually depressed. Jesus knew what it was to be anxious. Jesus knew what it was to fear loss. Jesus knew what it was to feel betrayed and left out and cut out and even abandoned by his Father. God is doing the same in you as he unites you to his son. You're following in his steps, being crushed and humbled and made like Christ in every way that you might be a fellow redeemer. Your suffering doesn't disqualify you. Your weakness doesn't disqualify you. The weaker he makes you, the more He demonstrates through you his power to redeem. The more he makes you a comfortable bridge over which one can walk to Jesus. Moses was fully human to show us a fully human Christ that we might be fully human ourselves. And he he was miraculously preserved. Moses was miraculously preserved. Jochebed put him into this, into this ark, literally is the word, the same word that's used to translate the ark that Noah took his, took his family into and the animals. The ark symbolizes God's saving work, the preservation of his people. Just as he saved Moses and his family, so he, as the Noah and his family, he saves Moses in order to be a savior. In Christian art, I think we have somewhere in this, on this campus a reflection of the church that's sometimes figured as an ark, that we are in the church of Christ, united to Christ, being saved from the, the death of the water, the tumult around us. So... Moses was miraculously preserved, even as Jesus was miraculously preserved. As Herod tried to kill the children two years old and younger, Jesus was saved and taken to Egypt, ironically enough, to find his salvation and to be preserved as our our Redeemer. And God has saved you too. Do you realize that every birth is a miracle? We sometimes dismiss birth as as the gift that it is because of our great improvement in perinatal care. But truly it is a blessing to be born. That's That's why Moses' mother says this is a fine child. She's not just being like every other mother and admiring her child and his looks, but she is commenting that he is healthy. Look, this child is alive. And she's grateful for that. At the same time, she's worried about that because she knows that, that uh, Pharaoh has demanded that he be killed. She's, 
She stands amazed that he's been preserved. And then God in his wisdom gives her an ingenious plan to preserve him and to send him down the river to Pharaoh. Your being alive is a miracle. You realize if you're 46 years old or younger, you're a miracle. We've had about 130 live, 130 million live births since 1973, and about 60 million babies have been killed. There was about a 30% chance that you would not be here. Now I hasten for those mothers who have taken that, made that decision. And thank you for those of you who have entrusted that testimony with me. I want you to know the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sins. And your baby is in heaven. But for those of you still alive, it's a miracle you're here. And there's a reason you're here. And some of you here, some of you within the sound of my voice think that it's not worth living anymore. You don't want to live anymore. You don't, don't think that you're making any contribution. You're not, you're not supposed to be here. You're not important. But you have been miraculously preserved for this moment in history to hear this good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was, that Moses was miraculously preserved to show us a Christ who would be miraculously preserved, that he might miraculously preserve you and draw you to himself and use you to bring redemption into other people's lives. The person of Moses reveals the person of Christ and the personalism of Christ should refresh and dignify and inspire and empower your person to be a fellow redeemer. But Moses came to do a work too. He came to do a work. Yes, it was an amazing thing. It was an amazing thing to lead out of Egypt these enslaved people. And that, that's an amazing event in and of itself. It's a, it's a miracle. But every story, every narrative in the Bible is a part of a bigger story, a bigger cosmic story. As postmoderns would say, a meta-narrative. There is a meta-narrative that overarches every other smaller narrative, including your own. And this redemption from Egypt was just a piece of the puzzle that God has been assembling and will complete one day, which is that he will cause every knee to bow, every tongue to confess that he is Lord. Every throne and every dominion will be made a footstool, for, footstool under Christ's feet. He will make all things right. He will wipe away every tear. He will cure every disease. He will completely reverse the fall. And we will be made like him. That's the bigger picture. And that's the bigger picture of your life too. Whatever your personal narrative, whatever your personal present struggle, it's not an end in itself. God does care for it. Intimately, he cares for it. He's not saying, don't hear me say, you just need to get over it. There are bigger things going on in this world than your life. No, what I'm saying is that God 
is weaving a story together, and your life is an essential thread in that tapestry. And whatever your struggle, whatever your weakness, whatever your setback, whatever your disappointments, as God guides you through them, as He enables you through them, as He rescues you from them, He is telling a bigger story. A bigger story that includes the shutting of the accusing mouths of his cosmic enemies and the crafting of you into one who can show others the way and the crafting of you into one who is completely conformed to the image of Christ. But if that's the bigger story, what's the, why do we have these little stories? Why do we have these little stories even as momentous as it is in the Old Testament if Christ has already come, why do, we, why do we need to keep experiencing these little stories in our lives of redemption? Because what Jesus is doing for us and what He is, is going to do for us is still too big for us to comprehend. So He gives us little models of it. It's like this. For a few years, I've followed with interest the, the construction of the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab Emirates. Some of the friends of our church live in the UAE, and I'm sure they've seen this thing being constructed, the tallest tower in the whole world, over a, a kilometer tall, 124 stories. And for years and years, there was only a little model that you could look at on the, on the web, a, a, a scale model. You could look at it on the web, and now there's a model of it in the visitor center. And, 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 and why the model? When they, when they built the tower, why didn't they destroy the model? We don't need the model anymore. We have the real thing. It's because you can't see the real thing. It's too tall. When you stand on the ground and look up, you can't see the top of it. You know it's up there somewhere. You can't see it, so you go back and look at the model. Oh, that's what that's about. And when you wonder, what is Christ going to do? What is He doing in my life? What is this? What's happening in my little story? You look at the models. You look at the model. Look at the model of a faithful prophet, priest, and king like Moses leading his people out of Israel. And you see your prophet, priest, and king. You wonder, what is this? What is this happening with me? Why do I need to read the word when I'm in? Because Moses was a prophet. And he wrote down everything that his people needed to know. And he set a standard by which all of the other books of the Bible would be determined. And uh, Jesus came then to put flesh on that word. When you read that Bible, you read the words of a prophet, the prophet Christ, who gave you by his word and spirit everything that you need to know for your salvation. When you look at Moses acting like a priest... He had to identify with his people in every way. Every bad thing that happened to them happened to him. His stomach grumbled when they were hungry. He had to stand in the middle of those snakes as they were biting his people. But Moses, when God said, Moses, aren't you, aren't you tired of these people just standing out of the way? I'll kill them all. Moses said, you can't do that. He stands in the way and he mediates. That's your Savior who is your priest. You're going through this suffering, you're going through this weakness, you don't know how to live through it, you don't know what to, to believe through it, you don't know how to pray through it. Your priest is praying for you, our catechism says. He is a priest who is delivered up once for all for our salvation to bring us to God and continually makes intercession for us. 
And then you look at Moses and you see a king. A king who organized the society. A king who acted as a political leader. A king who took responsibility to feed his people. He took responsibility to provide them water. He took responsibility to judge them civilly. He took responsibility to protect them from their, their enemies. He is a king. And he anticipates very imperfectly our king who subdued us to himself, who rules and defends us and redeems us from all of his and all our enemies. And he does it as a servant at infinite cost to himself. He united himself to that which would have killed us eternally, that he might conquer it with his resurrection and cause us to live forever. It's a servant who kept the promise of God. Two thousand thirteen or two thousand yes, two thousand thirteen Ray Edward Blankenship was standing at his at his kitchen window. He was cleaning out his, off his dishes from breakfast, getting ready to go to work. Next door, the O'Connells were his neighbors, and when Mr. O'Connell left for work, he saw his two children playing in the front yard with a beach ball. One was two years old, the other was slightly older. It had been raining a lot lately. Ground was soaked. All the low-lying areas were flooded the drainage ditch behind their house was running in a torrent. Mr. O'Connell left for work. He saw the two girls playing just fine. But Ray Edwards Blankenship looked out his window. He saw a horrific sight. It was little Jessica O'Connell, the two-year-old, bobbing in the torrent of the drainage ditch. He knew the danger that was ahead, so he prepared a plan. He knew the danger. He knew the water was running too high for her to make it through the culvert under North Main in Andover, Ohio. It was running too high. She would never survive. He had to get to her. He had to get to her before she reached that culvert. He made his plan. He dashed out the door. He hurled his body toward her into the water. He grabbed her pulled her up, and just before going under the culvert, he grabbed hold of a protruding rock and held her up above the water until the firemen could arrive and rescue them both. Only two years later, when he was recognized by the highest award that Andover could give, did he admit that he had never learned to swim He made a plan because he saw the need. But the plan, for all he knew, included his own death. Do you doubt God loves you? Do you doubt Jesus loved you? That he knew from all of eternity that you and I needed to be saved. And there was only one way to rescue. 
And it would necessarily mean he'd be estranged from his father and die with our sin. Jesus loves you. This you must know. Because this Bible, every part of it, Old and New Testament, tells you so. Let's pray together. Sovereign Father, we thank you that you have ordained that every suffering we encounter is to fill up, is to complete the work of Christ in our world. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming us and pray that you would make us redeemers in this world by pointing our neighbors, pointing ourselves back to you, our Lord Christ. Get a name for yourself in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.